brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to the Beijing-born American author Si Pam Zhang about her book Land of Milk and Honey, a wonderful, morally complex novel that plays on ideas about power and resistance. Her first book, How Much of These Hills is Gold, was not only long-listed for the Booker Prize in 2019, but it was also one of Barack Obama's Books of the Year. I think he'll like this one too. I certainly did. Now, Pam, I'm so pleased you can join us and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have you, or should I say, how close have you been to extreme wealth? Have you been in those rooms? Have you met those people? It depends on one's definition of extreme wealth. I used to work in tech in San Francisco, so I certainly was in close quarters with millionaires. I would say that those in my book are the 0.0001%. I have not been in rooms with them, but the book came about partly as a result of a year I spent living in a strange little town in Washington State called Medina, where my neighbors included at the time Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. And so a good deal of the imaginative quality of the book comes from walking around, and I was never invited in, I never, you know, rubbed elbows with them, but just wondering about what kinds of lives people were living behind these massive gates, these hedges that cut out the rest of the world, and what kinds of communities they did or did not have there. Are you intrigued by them? Do you envy them? Are you repulsed by them? Um, hmm. All of those in different uh, proportions and at different stages of my life. Certainly, especially at the time that I left off working in the tech industry, I was closer to repulsed and, and disillusioned by it, right? I think that especially in the what I would call the golden age of tech in San Francisco when I was working there, there was a certain kind of evangelism that was present in these conversations and this sort of interesting duplicity that the public also participated in, in which we agreed that these people accruing great wealth and fortune around themselves was also in some way bettering humanity by making an app. I don't, it's, it's hard to look back and understand the precise logic of it. But I think that through the process of writing these characters in my book, I feel also a sense of, of pity for the extremely wealthy, because I do think that wealth can be warping. Wealth can be alienating. It can create this kind of dangerous barrier between oneself and the world such that the very wealthy are no longer able to see the world for how it is. And that presents an actual physical as well as psychological danger to them. Was the evangelizing at the time as much about accruing wealth as it was about creating apps that would change the world? Or was it more about the tech and how that would help humanity? I don't think those things can be disentangled, at least not in the rooms that I was in. It was this interesting mythology created that reminded me of the broken mythology of the economic dream, right? This insistence that financial gains 
and moral high ground and what we might call progress scientifically or technologically could all go hand in hand. And I suppose it's lovely to imagine that they can and we all fell in line. How long into the pandemic and the lockdowns was it before you began to feel profoundly unsettled, that it went beyond being an inconvenience into much darker territory? Hmm. That's such a good question. It was always unsettling for me. And the, the thing is, I can't disentangle the pandemic from the experience of my first novel, How Much of These Hills Coming Out. The release date was April 7th in the US and I think April 9th in the UK. And that was, I think, the same week that San Francisco, the city, locked down. For me, the first experiences of the pandemic were this emotional detachment from the physical experience of being in my body, right? I would turn on my my Zooms and I would do these book pitches and these talks and then I would close the screen and be alone with headlines of the despair going around in the world, but also trapped and isolated as we, we all were. So that kind of whiplash effect of absorbing a lot of the grief of the world, not being able to access the physical and embodied joy of being in a room with people, that got to me very early on. And there's certainly some of that in the DNA of Land of Milk and Honey. It, The book really is in many ways about reconnecting with one's physical body in times that feel apocalyptic, of sort of reaching for joy through sensorial experience first. And what about overcoming the idea of the selfishness of sensorial pleasure. Yeah, I it was a big hump for me to get over. And I'm thinking over that, I, I believe that a lot of it comes from being socialized as a woman. I think that as women, we're brought up to put others' pleasure before our own, and that female pleasure is coded as inherently suspect or frivolous or even morally reprehensible. It's sort of something that your automatic reaction is either like a laugh or a flinch. And I think what is dangerous about that is it neglects how important pleasure is for continuing to live in the world, this kind of dark and complicated and sometimes gruesome world that we live in, right? Because the pandemic made it very clear to me that what we talked about as essentials, meaning food, water, shelter, health, those were necessary for us to continue to live from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. But, you know, as someone who has suffered depression and still suffers it, it's not a rhetorical question to ask, what is the point of all of that if you don't have joy, if you don't have pleasure, right? I firmly believe that in order to give back to the world, however you define that, you need to first have those emotional resources within yourself. And pleasure helps fill that well. Pleasure helps make us continue to be part of our communities for decades, for the span of a lifetime. And I think pleasure is also an interesting intellectual proposition that is often brushed aside. Because as I was writing this book, I became deeply interested in how individuals define pleasure for themselves, right? Because we are conditioned by the capitalist and consumerist societies in which we live to associate that word pleasure with luxury and decadence and yachts and mansions and, you know, beach vacations and all that. But 
when I turn to the people in my life that I respect the most who are models for me, and when I turn back to myself, many of my pleasures are small and intimate, and they're disentangleable from the pleasure of people in my community. I can't truly derive pleasure for very long if others are suffering. And I think that is true for so many people. So I think focusing on that question of pleasure instead of being ashamed of it is a way forward. Did the pandemic, Pam, make you reappraise entirely and in doing so kind of cut down and focus with a kind of almost laser-like focus on what it is that actually brings you pleasure? Yeah, it it was. Um, The genesis of this book in many ways comes from one of the first meals I had out again after vaccinations. And it was after months of not only denying myself pleasures, but being quite ashamed of my body for wanting to go out and dance in a crowded room or hop on a plane and travel or be with friends. And I was having this meal with an old friend of mine who was a doctor at the time. So you can only imagine the kinds of things that he had seen and the kinds of grief that he had held. And when we first sat down, we were catching up over all the hardships of the year and the mood felt very heavy. And then the food arrived at the table and the atmosphere of the room just shifted. And it wasn't that the worries of the world disappear, we would go back to them. But in that moment, all we could be was in our bodies. Our bodies were sort of clamoring for attention, insisting that we were present and we were here. And it was seeing that kind of joy it brought to someone I cared about, someone who I thought deserved this kind of pleasure that made me turn the question back around and ask, well, doesn't everyone deserve this pleasure? What kind of world are we working towards if we don't want people to have these experiences? And then finally turn it all the way back to ask, well, don't I deserve pleasure as well? Did you come out of the pandemic striving to be a different type of person or to return to the person you was before the pandemic? As difficult as that period of time was, I think that for many people, it was illuminating as well. Being forced to spend all this time in isolation, being forced to spend time without the social pressures and other pressures of the world looking in on you caused me to ask myself, what do I really want when nobody else is looking? What truly gives me joy? And, you know, for some people, they discovered, for example, that whatever, being home alone, baking bread, taking care of their plants, it gives them a deeper level of satisfaction than, say, going out every night. And some people, the pandemic reinforced the idea that going out every night was really important. Um, I think it was just a, a really clarifying time. And increasingly for me, I just try to listen to what I actually want. And I have this newfound understanding that what I want is often quite seasonal, I'm not going to be the same person from year to year or even month to month. And I'm not putting pressure on myself to be right now. You know, we were talking before the recording began about the winter hours and the early darkness. And I realized I want to hibernate, especially after having been on book tour in the fall. All I want to do is eat stews and be inside and wear large sweaters and that's probably what I will lean into for the next two or three months. And then I'm guessing that come spring, I'll want a very different style of life. In preparing to write this book, was there an urgency to 
simply in some ways dump all these emotions that built up inside of you in a way that was much different to how you'd have prepared for how much of these hills is gold. Urgency was certainly there, but it wasn't different. I think that every book I write needs to start with that sense of urgency, with that sense of a voice clamoring to have a necessary story that is told. There's a writing prompt or question that Alexander Chi talks about. If you were dying, what story would you tell? And I think for me, every book of mine needs to have that kind of urgency or I don't I can't carry it through to the last page. The differences were that in How Much of These Hills is Gold, that urgent question was a question that I had been grappling with for, you know, 20 plus years of my life. And for A Land of Milk and Honey, it was as urgent of a question, but it was one that felt more true to my recent adult self. What frustrations do you share with your central character? One thing that was interesting was the chef trying to assert her authority at five foot one, covered in tattoos, once shaved all her hair off. And I just wondered if any of those frustrations of a woman in a kitchen were shared by a woman in tech? (laughs) Yes, um, they are. And I think they're just shared by women in any professional field or in any service industry. And I joke, but not joke, that all women work to some extent in a service industry. They're expected to be sort of pleasant for other people, for the comfort of other people. And I don't know a single intelligent woman who isn't extremely canny about the way she presents herself visually, regardless of what her particular sartorial choices are, her particular style. You are always aware of the small exchanges that you're making with your personal decisions in terms of how you carry yourself. What would you identify personally as your frustrations that perhaps found their way through into your character in Land of Milk and Honey? Uh, so there is, I ha- have always been interested in this question of being an Asian woman in the Western world. This strange paradox of being simultaneously hyper-visible, hyper-sexualized, and completely invisible in that you're interchangeable with other Asian women. There's a plot point that sort of hinges upon a an absolutely ridiculous case of mistaken identity. And I remember that when my editor first got to that part, she paused and was like, really, could this happen? And that was absolutely the most realistic part of this book that you know, crosses genres and maybe science fiction or dystopia or what have you. My very first professional experience was at this conference called the Breadloaf Writers Conference in the United States. It's widely regarded as like one of like the most prestigious writing conference. I took part in a short reading and the next day one of my friends came up to me. She is a Japanese woman who is like almost literally half a foot shorter than me, had hair down to her waist where my hair was short. I mean, in other words, looked nothing like me, dressed nothing like me. And she told me that she had been congratulated on my reading the night before. And it was one of those moments of feeling the bubble burst a little bit where, you know, I was naive at the time. I was new to the literary world. And I had somehow assumed that in this space where we all believed in the power of books and literature to 
illuminate one's individuality and humanity um, in this art form that is about interiority, that these things would not happen, but it was no different in the literary world than in any other sphere that I've been in. Are you an American author, an American author of Chinese descent, or would you prefer just to be an author? (laughs) I used to fantasize about being just an author, but more and more, I think that those of us whose identities are marginalized in any way often turn that outsider gaze into a strength. Most of the books I read, most of the contemporary books I read, end up being by often by women of color, by queer writers. And it isn't because I'm deliberately selecting these. I realize it's because oftentimes being in this position causes you to see the world in a more acute and interesting way than if you are part of the dominant majority. Being in this position means that you see the cracks in the world, you see the cracks in the rules, you see that meritocracy, that the kind of meritocracy that we say we operate under is not truly a meritocracy. And seeing these disparities makes you just a clever, more subversive, more fascinating writer, I think. Um, And so these days, I will first of all say that yes, I am an American writer, and part of being an American writer is being able to pick at and criticize what America is, and hopefully make that interesting to others. But more so, it just makes me a more curious writer. But once you begin to criticize from a country that you know very well, there'll be those that will immediately remind you that you are alien to that country. And I know that as a minority myself, with the well-worn phrase, if you don't like it here, why don't you go back to where you came from? Oh, yes, that phrase. I suppose you started your question with a but. I suppose I try to see it these days as less of a but, more of an and. It is true. And I do also think that as long as you have a community that supports you, you have friends who sort of hold you up, those kinds of criticisms, while often invalid, they do sharpen your own beliefs and opinions. They're kind of like a whetstone that you can use to become more pointedly yourself, to become more convinced in your beliefs, to sort of test your own arguments and have a firmer sense of the ground on which you stand. How do you, through the writing process, ensure that the human doesn't become a polemic, but equally the story you're telling of humans has a message in it? Hmm, that's a wonderful question. First, I would say that I'm not interested in my stories having a message. In my life, in a party situation in which I find myself conversing with strangers, I'm always drawn to those people who have complicated viewpoints. I'm always drawn to those people who seem to have contradictions within themselves. Just trying to think of the last party I went to, I ended up talking to this man who on the surface works in finance, um, is an engineer, presents himself as this like kind of rigid and serious immigrant. 
And at the same time, he ended up telling me about his first experiences of coming to the U.S., living in Virginia in the American South, going to these poker games with um, people who might be considered rednecks who lobbied at him. Racist comments that he explained were not made out of malice, were just made out of not knowing anyone like him. And throughout these three years of playing poker every night for eight hours with these people, he told them the entire time that he was a pilot and they just believed it. And I'm just like, that is so fascinating, right? What, how do you make sense of this man? And I don't think I make sense of it. And in many ways, I think that writing a character is trying to make sense of their contradictions and failing and just putting their contradictions and their weirdnesses on the page is what makes for an interesting character. I would be exceedingly bored if I ended up writing a character who is completely consistent within themselves. Um, and at the end of the day, the first person I want to please or entertain is myself. So I don't think it's it's ever a message or a polemic that I'm interested in representing so much. It's just characters that are weird and make me want to keep following them, keep reading about them. When was the last time you could identify being in a conversation with someone and they were surprised at one of your viewpoints because they'd made an assumption about you as a writer, for instance, that you would think in a different way? Oh, that's so interesting. I don't know that it was a conversation so much as uh, on book tour, having people come up to me and, and I suppose think that I had the views of certain characters that I, for example, thought that, yes, like the wealthy were completely reprehensible and that anybody with wealth should not exist on this planet. I'm like, well, those are, you know, those are viewpoints that are perhaps raised by certain uh parts of my novel. And I think it's interesting to turn them up to the light and examine them. But I don't, I don't think I have any particularly strong, I don't think any character is me. I don't think any character is my mouthpiece. But I think the most fascinating thing that characters do for you as a writer is they allow you to examine different opinions that you don't hold that strongly and that you can investigate to their fullest extent only in the form of fiction. How conscious are you, and I'm making an assumption here, so please shoot it down if it's wrong, but how conscious are you of being in rooms where overwhelmingly people agree, people come from the same kind of standpoint, and how perhaps terrified are you of being in kind of monolithic, monocultural environments. Mm. One version of that is that I moved to to Brooklyn, to New York City, about two years ago, and I quickly realized that it's it's a wonderful place. I love it. But in the literary community, it is so very, very insular. And I started out by, you know, going to a lot of literary events and hanging out with only writers. And I quickly realized that if this became my life, my life and then my writing itself would become incredibly narrow. I think that what I am always hunting for is this sense that there are other worlds. And, you know, I maybe I mean that in a supernatural sense, or maybe I mean that in the sense of discovering aliens. But I also just mean other viewpoints, other ways of seeing the world that are radically different from my own. More than anything, as a person and as a writer, I fear stagnation. I fear that sense that I know everything, 
that all my beliefs are too firmly held to ever change because I think the moment you become complacent in that way, you stop thinking really, you stop being curious. So I would say that I continue to be interested in walking into rooms in which people have different opinions. And I do think the asterisk on that is, of course, you want to be sure that you are in rooms where you are physically safe, right? Um, that a conversation itself may get heated, may get confrontational, but that you feel physically safe. And certainly there are spaces in which I wouldn't necessarily feel that physical safety. And that would be my boundary. Throughout the pandemic, essentially at the early stages as well, there was from certain people a racial component to COVID-19, and that was very anti-Chinese. How did that feel for you to hear the country of your birth and your ancestors and your family taken apart in such a way? In many ways, it was disappointing, but not shocking to me because, hmm, how do I put this? It wasn't surprising to me because I had seen the tip of that iceberg for the entirety of my life. To be Asian American in America, to be Asian in America is often to face more, up until 2020, was often to face more microaggressions than physical aggression, and to have those kinds of microaggressions be discounted as not real racism or not as serious. And there was this strange kind of I told you so feeling to seeing the anti-Asian hate crimes in 2020, because I could then point and say like, I, you know, I, it's awful, but I knew this was coming all along. This is all, you know, there's just like maybe one or two steps further along that spectrum. So what really unsettled me more than the violence was the hypocrisy behind the violence. And what I mean by that is food became incredibly central to many of our lives during the pandemic. It was one of the the brief pleasures that we could allow into our our little boxes of lives. And on the one hand, I could see people enjoying Chinese food, enjoying Thai food, enjoying Asian food, and being perfectly happy to take from those cultures in that manner. And on the other hand, despising the bodies that are responsible for that food. There's this hypocrisy that I just can't really quite get my head around. In America, I would argue that Chinese American food is one of the American cuisines. In my travels through the middle of America on road trips, you go to these tiny little middle of nowhere towns, and if they have the pizza place, the burger place, the diner, they almost always have a little Chinese American restaurant too, right? But that seeming love for a culinary culture didn't protect any Chinese bodies from violence. So that that hypocrisy planted a seed for land of milk and honey as well. I was curious about this food culture in which the average American or a British citizen would be okay with the idea of a fancy French restaurant charging, say, $60, $60 for a chicken dish, but would balk at the idea of a Chinese restaurant charging, say, more than 30 And why do you balk, right? It's fascinating because it makes the concept so clear to me. That difference in price is literally the difference in value 
between those two cultures, between the people that make those two types of food. Um, and you can't argue with that anymore. You can't argue about, you know, color blindness or racial progress. It's right there written on a menu with a dollar sign. And those experiences taught you to lean into a sense of belonging in America? Or was it a challenge that actually the place that you think of as home doesn't want you there? Mm. It is a challenge, but I think my definition of home is ever shifting. And more and more, I look for a localized sense of home. Um, as someone who has moved around a lot, oftentimes home to me means not even a city, but perhaps my 10 blocks in a city or a particular community I'm part of and a particular room with maybe even just five people. Those are versions of home. And I think that to to love a country, as I still do America, is to grant it the respect of challenging it, um, grant it the respect of your attention, is to, to love a place, is to fight for it. Um, and I think there is nothing more fundamentally American to me than standing up and criticizing the place in which you live and arguing that there are better ways to live there. After finishing Land of Milk and Honey, Pam, did your dietary needs, and I don't mean this from a health perspective, I mean it from a food perspective, did they change? Hmm. I think that they have shifted to be a little more focused on produce, on fresh vegetables, on fresh fruit. I think that does have something to do with the pandemic. You know, eating seasonally, looking forward to the week when fresh artichokes would come in or the week when cherry season would hit. Those became the most delightful and the most tangible markers of time. I increasingly, oddly, just want to eat simpler most of the time. I still have my luxuriant, decadent meals, but I enjoy them more when there's a contrast in my life. And I look for that range of eating experiences. I think that, you know, for example, I always have long harbored a love for sour cream and cheddar ruffles. Um, very trashy, a, a chip or crisp for for those uh, UK listeners. And I always ate them, but I would feel a little bit shamed about saying them, right? I would kind of just, I would announce my allegiance with sour cream and cheddar ruffles with a little bit of a joke. And now I'm just like, no, I love them unabashedly. I eat them and I eat meals where it's all vegetables and greens. And I eat meals that are covered in cream sauces and that cost $3 signs. I really want to have that full spectrum of experience. Now, we asked you, as we do all our esteemed guests, Pam, to bring us a few objects to talk about, a few things to talk about. And we'll start with a pair of sneakers or trainers, as we call them here in the UK. And uh, I like this first object because I also own a pair of these as well. And I'm very, very happy to have had a pair of them. So tell us what they are. So they are a pair of Comme des Garçons uh, Converse's. So it's a collaboration between that brand and the more, I suppose, pedestrian uh, Converse. And I remember them fondly because they marked this moment in my life. I was, I think, 25 when I bought them, where 
I first felt financially comfortable enough to buy a garment for an aesthetic choice. So I think normal Converse's cost perhaps $40 a pair and these cost $80. But I was traveling and I wanted something that was not merely functional, that would allow me to assert a little bit of my personality even while tramping around. And it was it's just an interesting lesson in many ways. One, because my first day of, of walking around with them, they're quite, they're sort of thicker and stiffer than the standard pair of Converse's, and they'd cut the backs of my feet up. So I was literally bleeding while walking in these, but insisting on wearing them anyways, which was some kind of lesson. And then I also realized that even though I had bought these for purely aesthetic reasons, they're actually better made than the standard pair of Converse's. The soles are much thicker, so instead of having to throw them away or replace them after maybe three years of hard use, they lasted me, I think, seven or eight years. So it was a very, very interesting uh, moment in my adult life. Do they have a red heart or a black heart? Ooh, I, I think they only had red hearts when I bought them. Right. What about yours? Uh, they are red hearts. So yeah, I got them pretty early as well. They were the Jack Purcell ones. Um, okay, now next up, talking of food. And of course, you mentioned now that you go through the full spectrum of food. This is brilliant. Tell us why you you wanted to talk about all-you-can-eat buffets. <laughs> so as a child growing up in an impoverished family, we very, very, very rarely ate out. With the exception of going to all-you-can-eat buffets because it was it was bang for the buck, right? Um, and so this was when we my family had first moved to America. We were living in Kentucky at the time. And so one of the buffets we went to frequently was ostensibly a Chinese buffet, really Chinese-American, and made these interesting concessions to local food culture. They had these deep-fried puffs of dough that they called hush puppies, which are a very Southern thing traditionally made with cornmeal that are quite sort of dense and heavy. But in reality, they were labeled hush puppies, but they were an iteration of a much more common Chinese dessert, which is made with a lighter batter and covered with powdered sugar. And so I remember going to these buffets and being told the the number one rule of buffets is you eat the expensive food first. So if there's crab legs, you go for the crab. If there's fish or uh, lamb or beef, you go for that first. And never must you eat fill up on the rice and the potatoes. But my small rebellion against this rule was I would eat endless amounts of chicken corn soup <laughs> and endless amounts of soft serve ice cream. Um, and so they hold a really place, special place in my heart because they were my first experience with a certain definition of abundance, right? It was never the kind of household where you were encouraged to go to the grocery store with your parents and pick out anything you want. I was always very conscious of the cost of every item, but then to be let loose in a buffet and to be told that this is a space where you're allowed to behave in a very different way, that was incredibly special. And while I am no longer such a fan of buffets, it is a very treasured memory for me. Is that one of the earliest experiences of pleasure? 
Yeah, maybe so. I would say buffets and then the experience of go- experience of going to a library as a child. And it was also an experience centered around a kind of gluttony. The local library was one my mother had to drive me to, so I could only go once a week. And they had a checkout limit of 20 books. And I always checked out 20 books and waited impatiently for my next opportunity to dash in. And there was this very particular pleasure on weekends of sitting with that full stack and just reading nonstop for hours and hours and hours. I still like that feeling of being almost, yeah, glutted on something that gives me joy. And this goes back to the buffet as well. I've checked out books that were wildly diverse in terms of quality, in terms of genre. And I still miss that childhood feeling of not really having taste yet, of just trying a little bit of everything and of everything surprising you. What is your next object? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm a big, big, big fan of baths. And that's a more adult luxury that I learned much later on. Baths are often an important part of my writing process when I need to sort of shift lanes. Um, I will just plunge myself in a bathtub and there's something elemental about it to me. It literally is taking yourself from one environment into a vastly different one. There's something about the floating feeling and the encapsulating warmth that really helps me either come from my real life into the world of a novel or conversely, helps me unstick myself from one way of seeing the progress of a novel and explore another. I can't really articulate it in words. Well, let's see if you can articulate why it is that you want us all to know about a lamp, essentially first designed in the 1950s, I believe, in Japan. Yes, um, this is... One of my favorite uh, physical objects, it is a Noguchi table lamp, and it's this particular model that is orange and cream, I suppose. So when you turn it on, it casts this really beautiful, diffuse and warm light. And as someone who moved around so much, it really wasn't until the past couple of years that I gained confidence that I would live at least five years in my place of residence and that maybe I should start taking the objects around me more seriously. I read this beautiful biography of Georgia O'Keeffe by Roxana Robinson, and there's this snippet from one of O'Keeffe's letters to a friend that basically posits that everything is art. Um, Everything that you surround yourself should be artful. And obviously there's, you know, it requires a certain level of privilege to be able to say that. But increasingly, this is a bit similar, I suppose, to that pair of Converse shoes where there is functionality and then there is this kind of emotional and creative nourishment. There's something about the color of that light and the fact that these Noguchi lamps, 
they're like little sculptures and I don't know if everyone interprets them this way but they to me look like little alien creatures they're often a little off kilter <laughs> this one has like three funny little legs with like tiny balls on the end like feet they look like friendly aliens they they feel like they're a quarter alive in my presence and um, there's something about that that stokes the creative fires in me. How did you first come across this lamp? I believe that it was a person I was dating at the time who owned one of these. You know, I never would have bought one for myself. I never would have, coming from my background, given any moment to the idea that one might pay, I think, like $200 for a lamp when you could get a $30 lamp at Ikea. But living in a space with a lamp like this, like, really really made me feel a kind of connection with it. Like I'm quite attached to it. They are, it is like a little, little friend that follows me around now. And continuing the subject of light, but more natural light, what is your final object, Pam? My final object is Northern California light. I'm sure a scientist could explain this better, but there is something about the quality of light in the Bay Area in San Francisco that is definitive to me. I would not mistake it for anywhere else in the mid mornings. It has this sharpness and brightness and almost blueness that just feels like you can see for miles and miles farther than you could with any other form of light. And in the afternoons, it is golden and warm and there's just something something special about it. And just seeing that light fall on sea grasses, on hills, on houses evokes this deep-seated sense of nostalgia, this kind of ache that is so deeply ingrained in me, having spent much of my youth and young adulthood in that part of the world. It's hard to say that I love that light because, you know, growing pains, lots of things happened to me while I was living there, not all of them good, but it, it feels fundamentally a part of me. It sort of feels like connecting with a family member where the relationship is not so simple as to be defined by good or bad. It just, it is, it's an important relationship. What is your relationship like with nature? And by nature, I don't mean strolling around in a park. I mean, actually being isolated in nature. Is there a need? Is it a pleasure that you can dip in and dip out of? Or are you ostensibly a city person? Oh, I can't ever see myself not living in a city. Um, I love nature, but I love it in a way that is tinged by the utmost respect and fear. Nature is not a toy to be played with. To be in the middle of the wilderness really makes me understand the smallness of my life, makes me understand that I was not made to survive out there. And so one of my favorite experiences with nature was at the Mori Art Museum in Tokyo, where they had this exhibit that involved going into this completely dark room where they had these sort of bean bags on the floor. So you were sitting very low and the ceilings were perhaps 20 or 25 feet high and they projected onto them these looping videos of trees with their leaves blowing in the wind and you could hear these sounds and be enveloped by nature. 
but actually we're in the middle of a museum. Um, and so that's, that's, I'm, I'm just not an outdoorsy person. I know I would die in a day or two. I'm not a survivalist. Um, I very much believe I, I like a paved path for walking. I like to, I believe in conservation. I believe in national parks. But I also believe in letting nature be itself. It doesn't sort of need to be accessible to, to people to have worth and to have value. And I raise my eyebrows very high at the type of person who has a kind of arrogance in their relationship with the outdoors. One of my pandemic reads, strangely, that got me through a very paralyzing period was this terrible, amazing book called Death in Yellowstone, or Deaths in Yellowstone, perhaps. And it is just a long and detailed record of the many ways in which people have died in Yellowstone National Park, most of them as a result of idiocy, right? I think the first third of the book is just the ways that people have died by being boiled alive in hot springs. And usually it's because they plunged into them because they assumed that hot springs were like a hot tub or fell off the edge of like a waterfall because they took one step back to get the perfect selfie. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think they call those the Darwin Awards. Oh god. <laughs> what an interesting read. My gosh. If any of that influenced Land of Milk and Honey. Don't know. I can't remember seeing any character that's boiled alive in a hot spring in Land of Milk and Honey. I also think though there is a no boiling alive, but there is definitely <laughs> a thread of human hubris. Yes. That there definitely is. Yes, there definitely is. Pam, our time has come to an end, but thank you so much. It's been so interesting to talk to you. And thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out about the Penguin podcast. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or indeed this wonderful book, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts where you'll find deep discussions with authors from Margaret Atwood to Benjamin Zephaniah. Dip in and see what you find. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you next time. Bye.